Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Department of Medicine uh, Medical Grand Rounds. For those of you listening remotely, I'm going to read our activity code for today for your um, CME credit. Uh, it's A-Y-D-Z. Um, it's not case sensitive, so don't worry about that. Again, A-Y-D-Z. And for those of you in the audience, it's posted on the papers on the side, uh, so I know you can see it there. And with that, I will um, welcome Dr. Richard Enolo to uh, uh, start today's conference. He's the Section Chief for Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Former, sorry. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and the uh, Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Medicine. Thanks, Kelly. Um, it's a pleasure um, to uh, introduce our uh, 2016 Jerome Brody uh, lecture, lecturer, um, Dr. Tim Blackwell, who comes to us from Vanderbilt. Um, uh, but before I, uh, I tell you something about Dr. Uh, Dr. Blackwell, I want to tell you a little bit about Jerome Brody, who, um, who's, who's um, in whose name the, the lecture is, is dedicated. Um, uh, Jerry attended Dartmouth College and the Tuck School of Business, and um, he was an energetic and uh, visionary individual who uh, began a, uh, a very lucrative and very successful chain of restaurants, um, destination restaurants in New York City, beginning with the development of the Four Seasons, uh, also Gallagher Steakhouse and my favorite, the Grand Central Station Oyster Bar. Um, uh, and uh, uh, his, his widow, Marlon Brody, is in our audience today. Um, and she uh, comes to these lectures every year because she's extremely curious about what's going on in the field. Um, she met uh, Jerry in, uh, in Paris in 1954. That's that's Jerry at the Oyster Bar. Getting a little hungry looking at that. Um, she met Jerry in uh, 1954 in Paris when she was an uh, interpreter for John Steinbeck. And um, she was an assistant then to Jerry, who was in France to redevelop a hotel purchased by Restaurant Associates, his business firm. After she and uh, Jerry returned to the United States in 64, she became a partner in Jerry's business. Marlon currently runs Gallagher Studs, uh, first-class racing and breeding uh, operation in Ghent, New York, which I've uh, visited recently. It's, uh, it's beautiful up there, and there's lots and lots of horses. Uh, she and her husband started that in 1978, and it's a leading thoroughbred farm in the state. So I just want to thank Marlon Brody and, of course, her late husband. Uh, the gift was established by Marlon um, in memory of Jerry, who died of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and the fund supports IPF research at Dartmouth. Um, so we're, we're very appreciative of Mrs. Brody for her generosity. In fact, we're Please, she's joining us today with her guests, and perhaps um, you would join me in a round of applause for our benefactress. So our speaker today is Dr. Tim Blackwell, um, who I've known for years, and he uh, he comes to us from Vanderbilt University. He trained, he was born in Birmingham um, and went to medical school at the University of, Bir of, uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham, um, but went back to Vanderbilt where he did his undergraduate and has spent most of his career, training and career at Vanderbilt, uh, where he has risen through the ranks. He had become um, chief at the Nashville VA uh, and then the director of the, of the Vanderbilt Lung uh, Biology Research Center, um, and over the course of the years, he rose to the ranks of professor of medicine, cell biology, 
and cancer biology and was named the Ralph and Lulu, uh, what is that exactly? Ralph and, and Owen, Ralph and Owen, uh, professor of medicine. He has uh, over 200 publications, numerous new awards. He's made in, uh, all manner of contribution in all manner of uh, fields, particularly in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis of late. And he follows, uh, he and his group follow uh, families who have familial forms of the disease or, or diseases which we think are, uh, are subsets of this disease. And it's through some of his work with analyzing the genes, the genes and the uh, genetics of these families with high penetrance um, that he, he has really made some amazing strides in understanding um, the types of abnormalities that we suspect under, underlie the disease process. He has, uh, he's mentored an enormous number of young physician scientists, and it's pretty clear from the CV that mentoring uh, junior physician scientists and junior investigators is an important part of his career. Um, and um, he, has, he has been invited all over the world to speak, um, and we're delighted to have him here today. So I will turn it over to Dr. Tim Blackwell to tell us about his work. So I think I'll start from the beginning instead of the end. <laughs> Good morning, and uh, I just want to say it's a real pleasure for me to be here. I'm just delighted to be able to tell you about some of our work related to uh, the genetics uh, of the familial version of interstitial lung disease. I'll start with a case presentation. This is a person we saw in our interstitial lung disease uh, clinic a few years ago. Uh, he's a 57-year-old man at the time who came in with about a two-and-a-half-year uh, history of dyspnea and a dry cough. His past medical history was for uh, gastroesophageal reflux. He had hypothyroidism. He was a non-smoker, uh, didn't uh, drink alcohol. He worked as a contractor building houses for about 30 years. He had no uh, birds, no exposure to uh, things like asbestos or silica that we uh, worry about as uh, causative lung disease. On exam, we found faint uh, bilateral inspiratory crackles, and he had mild clubbing on his fingers. We did a lot of serologic testing for connective tissue diseases, and it was all negative. These were his pulmonary function tests at the time. He had restriction with a low FVC and FEV1. His total lung capacity was reduced, and he had a very low DLCO. Now, this was his CT scan, and uh, you'll see on this the classic findings of pulmonary fibrosis with this uh, honeycomb change that occurs at the bases uh, and uh, subplurally. Now, when we told this gentleman that he had uh, IPF, this wasn't a surprise to him because this is his family. And so you can see this pedigree. This is quite a sib ship, even for Tennessee. And uh, there are lots of affecteds here. And so this was, this, this was our patient. We'll come back to him uh, as we uh, go through the talk. I want to just step back and tell you a little bit about interstitial lung disease from a global perspective. This is uh, a group of diseases that we think of as uh, idiopathic interstitial lung disease with IIP as the group category. Uh, of these, the most common and the most severe is the form that we call IPF, and the histological type of this is identified as usual interstitial pneumonia. This makes up 70 or 80 percent. It's where most of the studies are, and uh, this is the one that we'll talk about most today. But I just want to mention there are other forms. Uh, some of these are smoking-related, like DIP. 
and then some that can be related to other things like collagen vascular disease, this one we call NSIP. Now, about 20% of these are familial. And interestingly, if you're in a family, one person might have UIP and another might have NSIP or DIP. So the phenotype changes uh, and it's not consistent. So it looks like that there may be different forms of this that occur in the same family. IPF is the most common of these, as I said. It uh, occurs in the range of 20 per 100,000, something in the range of 50,000 deaths are estimated per year from this disease. It's unusual for IPF to occur before age 50, and the median age of uh, symptomatic onset is 65, although I'll show you that it probably is true that this disease smolders along for many years before symptoms occur. As with our patient, most people present with progressive dyspnea. They have a, a dry cough. They have an uh, abnormal exam that I showed you with our patient. And the classic finding really is this high-resolution CT uh, scan image that has the subpleural uh, honeycombing. And we make the diagnosis most often just based on history and CT scan. Uh, hypoxemia is common as well as these restrictive pulmonary function tests and almost everyone develops a worsening hypoxia with aging or as the disease progresses. The survival for this disease is just poor. Uh, this is in the range of many cancers. Median survival from this uh, paper by David Schwartz almost uh, or around 20 years ago showed a median survival of 28 months. There are a couple of recent studies in families that show that the median survival is about the same. So it really hasn't changed very much despite a couple of drugs that have been approved for use and are in uh, common use in, in our patients now. So there's lots of room to go with this disease because it's still very deadly. Now when we get biopsies, which uh, we do occasionally these days, this is what a biopsy of IPF or UIP looks like. And so this is a lung section at low power, and you can see some areas that look relatively normal uh, alongside areas that have a lot of fibrotic remodeling and loss of the gas exchanging units in the lung. And so we think of this as temporal heterogeneity, which we assume means, and it's probably right, there's some evidence that uh, this is related to multiple micro injuries that recur in different areas and lead to scarring in one place while the, the lung next to it might be relatively intact. When we comb down on the uh, regions of scarring, which you'll see in the higher power image right here, you can see this arrow points to a fibroblastic focus. So this is an area where there are fibroblasts that are making new collagen, uh, and this is what we think of as the engine that drives this disease. Importantly, if you cone down even higher, what you see is these fibroblastic foci are just next to changes in the epithelium. So this is the epithelium overlying it. The normal epithelium is a thin layer of type 1 cells that uh, facilitates gas exchange. But what happens in this disease is that the type 2 cells take over and they proliferate and you get these very abnormal epithelial cells that are just next to the fibroblasts. And we think this interaction between the epithelium and the fibroblasts is really critical for disease progression. So I'll move on to what we think of as the paradigm. We think this is, this is what we know about how IPF occurs right now. So we think that the initial injury is an injury to the epithelial lining of the distal gas exchanging units of the lung and that uh, there's this underlying abnormality of the epithelial cells that uh, facilitates this injury and makes the cell death uh, worse. After that, there's an inflammatory or immune response with macrophages and other cells that come into the area and try to resolve the injury. There's a leak from the uh, blood vessels with this fibrin clot formation and then fibroblasts move into that area as an attempt to heal the wound. Uh, fibroblasts uh, invade, they start to proliferate, and as opposed to a normal wound healing response, they uh, persist. And as they persist, they differentiate into myofibroblasts, which are more facile at making uh, collagen and matrix components. Uh, this uh, matrix then continues to accumulate the matrix cross-links so that it's hard for the normal resolution machinery to degrade it, and then you get an ongoing alveolar collapse and impaired reepithelialization with these abnormal lining cells, and we think this process occurs 
many times over years, and we think this is probably how the disease happens. Now, lots of the information that we've gained to, to add some insight into this is from studying genetic diseases associated with pulmonary fibrosis, and there are a variety of diseases that have progressive pulmonary fibrosis as part of their phenotype. Most of the time today, I'll spend talking to you about the first one, which is familial interstitial pneumonia, but also we'll mention dyskeratosis congenita, which is a disease that normally affects kids, but as these kids become adults, they can develop pulmonary fibrosis. Hermansky-Pudlak disease is another really interesting and rare genetic syndrome that causes epithelial disorders and progressive pulmonary fibrosis. One of my colleagues, uh, Lisa Young, studies this disease, and there's some really interesting parallels between this and, uh, and uh, FIP uh, that I won't have time to tell you about today, but we could discuss if anyone has questions. And then there are a few of these glycogen storage diseases and related kinds of abnormalities in addition to neurofibromatosis that occasionally cause uh, fibrotic changes in the lungs. The disease that we mostly think about when we uh, think about familial interstitial lung disease is this uh, disease called FIP. And this occurs when more than two members of a family are diagnosed with an idiopathic interstitial pneumonia. Just like the sporadic form, about 80% have this IPF variant. When we look at family pedigrees, most of them are consistent with an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern with incomplete penetrance. And if you're in a family that has fibrosis, being older, male, and having smoked increases the likelihood that you'll develop symptomatic disease. If you get disease, the course of it seems to be very similar to the sporadic form, and it's usually progressive and, uh, and fatal. We'll talk about two pathways that have been associated with disease, and these are uh, genetic variants in surfactant proteins and telomerase. And so I'll go through that because those are the best known, and then we'll talk towards the end about some new genes and pathways that we think might uh, be important. So the first gene that was associated with IPF in families was surfactant protein C. This was identified by Alan Thomas, who was one of our senior fellows at the time who had seen a paper about a child that had a surfactant protein C mutation uh, and had interstitial lung disease. We had a few large families like this, which are very unusual for us to have these multi-generation pedigrees because the disease doesn't typically occur until you're in your 60s. So it's hard to get multi-generations, but this was, this was our largest family at the time. He uh, did genetic sequencing and found that all the affected members had this change in surfactant protein C, which is a leucine to glutamine change uh, at the position 188. Uh, this was a really important finding for us for multiple reasons, but it was really the first identification that the type 2 epithelial cells were the critical cell in driving this disease because these are the only cells in the lung that make this protein. And interestingly, because of the character of this protein, this uh, suggested to us that this protein was misfolded and this might be a part of the toxicity. Uh, this is a type 2 cell from an affected member of this family on a lung biopsy. This is a scanning electron micrograph. And what you can see is, is that instead of the normal lamellar bodies which secrete surfactant, these have multiple small inclusions and are just very uh, abnormal in appearance. This was interesting to us because when we looked at the protein, surfactant protein C, which is a really tiny hydrophobic peptide when it's in its mature form, is made as a large precursor. And this precursor then gets cleaved and processed as it goes through the cell machinery to get to the lamellar body so that it can become the surfactant forming protein that helps to stabilize the surfactant that's required for alveolar function. But the L188Q mutant was really interesting because just next to this critical cysteine bridge is our mutation. So this pre predicted that the protein would be misfolded and might not go through the normal quality control machinery. So when proteins are misfolded, then they tend to cause activation of this thing that we call the uh, unfolded protein response because they undergo endoplasmic reticulum stress. Endoplasmic reticulum stress has been shown to be important in a variety of diseases, including uh, neurodegenerative disorders. And so at the time, we wondered whether this might be important in the pathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis. So ER stress is induced by misfolded proteins or abnormal energy supplies by a cell. 
And uh, what happens is that these pathways, these three pathways, are designed to reduce the untowards effects of protein accumulation in the endoplasmic reticulum because all the proteins that are secreted or go through the cell surface have to be processed through the endoplasmic reticulum. So things happen downstream of this, like increased uh, cell protective factors. There's protein synthesis attenuation. There are uh, more of these protein-folding chaperones that are produced. Uh, also, uh, there's degradation of protein and mRNA to reduce the throughput of the endoplasmic reticulum. And it turns out this is a very important adaptive response. That's how plasma cells make antibodies. You have to have this functional response in, in, in order to have homeostasis. However, when it's prolonged or severe, this can lead to apoptosis and the cells can die and contribute to disease. So initially, we wondered whether families that had this mutation had evidence of ER stress. And so we did immunostaining for these ER stress markers, these three markers here. This is a normal control lung, and this is a lung from a family member who had pulmonary fibrosis. And what you can see is this brown staining is in these abnormal lining type 2 alveolar epithelial cells. And you can see that there's a lot of brown here and not much brown here. So there's evidence of ER stress in the, in the <coughs> patients with this mutation, which we expected because we had modeled this in cells and, and assumed that would be true. The really surprising finding for us was that when we look now at uh, familial uh, pulmonary fibrosis IPF that didn't have surfactant protein C mutations or sporadic IPF, they all had the same pattern. So it turns out that ER stress is common in all forms of familial and sporadic pulmonary fibrosis and maybe one of the underlying etiology agents that uh, affect this uh, disease. So to make sure that this was a causative as opposed to just an associative finding, we made a mouse model where we overexpressed the human uh, L188Q mutant with a mini gene that's MCTAGged. We used a murine a surfactant protein C promoter to drive this expression, and then we used doxycycline to, to activate it. So uh, this panel here just shows that when we uh, overexpressed our mutant, that it co-localized in the uh, endoplasmic reticulum. This is an ER marker here, and so this merge means that our transgene, which is MCTAGged, uh, is yellow. When we did a downstream marker of the Golgi, which is the next compartment that proteins go to from the ER, uh, you can see that these don't co-localize. So this protein gets made, it gets stuck in the endoplasmic reticulum, and it can't get out, and presumably then gets degraded because we don't see any of the mature protein. What happens when we turn the transgene on is that we get marked upregulation of endoplasmic reticulum stress. Uh, which uh, is, uh, is interesting in what we uh, supposed would happen. However, this is very depressing to the postdoc who made these mice at the time. When we treated mice with doxycycline for up to six months, the lungs were completely normal. So we didn't cause fibrosis, didn't cause any abnormality just by inducing this gene to be produced and ER stress to occur. So we had to have a second hit, another injury, and so we used the standard bleomycin model that people use for fibrosis, and when we did this, just with a tiny dose that almost caused almost no effect in the wild-top mice, we had substantial fibrosis in the, um, in the mutants. This is scoring and collagen content and, and lung mechanics showing that they're different. So this uh, seemed to not cause uh, a priori pulmonary fibrosis, but in the setting of another injury made fibrosis worse. Yeah. So then we went on to do a whole lot of other studies, and I'll just show you this one briefly. Uh, this one is interesting because we think this might uh, help to uh, point out some areas of potential intervention. So there's uh, molecules like this 4-PBA, uh, phenylbutyric acid, which are protein chaperone agents. They're chemical chaperones that help throughput proteins across the endoplasmic reticulum. And so we added this uh, in the uh, water supply uh, for the uh, transgenic mice, and then we treated them with, uh, with bleomycin. Before we treated them with bleomycin, uh, you can see here that this is, these are measurements of endoplasmic reticulum stress. So ER stress is reduced and fibrosis is reduced. So suggesting that interventions that reduce ER stress might have a potential for uh, therapeutic benefit. 
So just to summarize uh, this section, we learned a lot by uh, understanding the surfactant protein mutant. We learned that ER stress and activation of the unfolded protein response are uh, detectable in, in uh, almost all patients with sporadic and familial IPF. The mice that we made don't spontaneously develop fibrosis, but they have increased fibrosis in response to other agents. We've now done a variety of other things that cause fibrosis in these mice, so, so this is an underlying propensity. Uh, treatments to improve protein trafficking could be beneficial, and uh, you know, this hasn't been studied yet in humans, but I think uh, could be and probably should be. And then, uh, importantly, ER stress seems to require another injury. We've become to think of this as a second hit. And while that might seem counterintuitive, for a disease that occurs with onset of age 65, having second environmental hits that bring out the phenotype are probably not surprising. So having an underlying uh, change that uh, increases your likelihood uh, probably then uh, interacts with uh, environmental agents to cause um, symptomatic disease. All right, so I want to switch gears now and talk to you about the other gene family that's associated with pulmonary fibrosis, and this is the telomerase genes. So telomeres are these caps at the end of uh, chromosomes that have this repeat of TTAGGG. And what this does is protects the end of the chromosome from this problem of being um, shortened and eats a replication cycle. And so telomerase is a reverse transcriptase that maintains the normal uh, telomere length, and you can see the telomeres uh, shown here. The key components of this complex are the, the TR component, which is the RNA template on which the reverse transcriptase uh, transcribes uh, increase in length of the telomeres, and then there are a variety of other proteins that stabilize the complex, like this one called discarin. Now, if you have a abnormality in this uh, pathway, you develop a disease that's called dyskeratosis congenita. This is uh, mostly inherited as a homozygous, so it's a recessive um, condition in most families, although sometimes it's X-linked. And it's identified by abnormal skin pigmentation, this nail dystrophy, and oral leukoplakia that you can uh, see here. Mutations in this have been linked to TERT and uh, this TR component as well as discarin and, uh, discarin and over a dozen other telomere-related genes. Most patients uh, actually uh, go on to die of bone marrow failure, but the second most common cause of death in these uh, people, uh, typically in their 20s and 30s, is pulmonary fibrosis. So uh, in 2005 and 6, one of our colleagues, Mary Armanios, who's a hematologist at uh, Johns Hopkins, saw a patient in her clinic that was in a family of a dyskeratosis congenita, but was unaffected, but in uh, his 60s developed pulmonary fibrosis. And so she wondered whether um, it might be possible that some of the uh, dyskeratosis genes might be uh, abnormal in families. And so she screened 73 of our families and found six of them had mutations in telomerase that segregated in the family with people who had disease. Uh, five of these were TERT mutations and one was a TR mutation, and this just shows the distribution of where those mutations were. And when she did telomerase activity assays, she found that these were loss of function uh, telomerase mutations. And interestingly, uh, when she looked at peripheral blood uh, lymphocytes, what she found is that the carriers of these uh, rare variants, and so as opposed to the childhood disease that have two bad copies of the gene, the um, adults in these families had a single abnormal uh, gene, so they were heterozygous. But what she found is that they all had short telomeres. So the telomeres in your cells actually reduce as you age, uh, and so we normalize this for age, but even normed for age, all these people who had the mutation were at the 10th percentile or below for telomere length. When other people looked at this, they found that not just in these families, but even in the sporadic form, about 30 or 40% of these people had short telomeres. So, so this is common in, in IPF. And so just to summarize the, what we know and what we knew about telomerase mutations, 
These loss of function telomerase mutations appear to affect cells that divide frequently, and we think this is another manifestation of where the epithelium is involved in the disease. Short telomeres are common in IPF. We've done a variety of animal models, and so have others, uh, that uh, support a second hit being required. It's the animal model data are related to telomerase are still not very clear. And then I just want to point out this theme of homozygous mutations causing disease in childhood, but heterozygous changes causing manifestations in adults is true both for the surfactant proteins and the telomerase uh, genes. So this is what we knew in 2014 about genes that were associated with pulmonary fibrosis. The TERT and TR genes I've told you about, by far the most common are these TERT gene abnormalities. There's surfactant protein C and A, and then this ABCA3 is a transport protein that's in the surfactant protein pathway, and you can see these are rare causes in families of pulmonary fibrosis, but still far more than 80% of the families did not have a genetic association that was defined. So we set out to do some whole exome sequencing because this technology has become available over the last few years. And so initially we did 350 or so subjects from 190 families. We did a variety of these that had uh, two or three members in the family. We did some just uh, singletons. The age uh, of these patients is 66, so it's just on the uh, median that I told you before. Um, many of these people are males. This is a male-predominant disease. And interestingly, uh, almost all of these are European Caucasian ancestry. Uh, that's a really interesting finding to us because we've looked really hard for African Americans and Asian families that have familial IPF, but they're very uncommon. So the vast majority of, uh, of these people are, are Caucasian ancestry. So what we did after we uh, obtained the sequences is that we selected them uh, based on um, variants that should make deleterious changes to the protein. They had to be rare, so minor allele frequency less than 0.03%. We then resequenced all of these to make sure they were real. We did functional annotation with programs that uh, determined conservation and potential uh, deleterious effects, and then that uh, led us to lists of high-priority genes within families. We then uh, have started to do and are in the process of doing functional studies to try and understand what these variants uh, might do. So to summarize a whole lot of data, uh, what we found is that there are few rare variants that are shared across families. So there's no CFTR for uh, familial pulmonary fibrosis. There are going to be multiple genes uh, and maybe not even in the same, maybe, maybe even multiple pathways that cause genetic uh, propensity for this disease. So uh, what we had to do then is to use a candidate gene approach to look for genes that uh, were in pathways that we recognized or that we could narrow down, and I'll show you some examples of, of both of those. So the first uh, thing that we uh, identified was that nine of our families uh, from that initial exome sequencing uh, shared rare variants in the uh, gene called regulator of telomere elongase. So you might imagine this would be a candidate for us. And so this is um, one of our pedigrees, which looks familiar to you, because this is our patient that we talked about at the beginning. And so this person is in a, a family that had a shared variance in Artel. So we looked at all these people. You, it's hard to see, but all the ones that have data there uh, had um, DNA that we sequenced, and every affected person had an Artel rare variant. Artel was really interesting, not just because of the name uh, of the gene, but because of what it does. So at the end of chromosomes, there's this thing called a T-loop, which keeps the <coughs> DNA repair apparatus from seeing the end of a chromosome as a chromosome break. And so it, it is required to have this T-loop to keep the DNA repair machinery at bay. However, this has to be unwound in order for this T-loop DNA to be replicated during cell division or before cell division. And so that's what uh, RTEL does. And so if you don't have RTEL, then what happens is this T-loop gets cut off because it can't be unwound. You end up with a T-circle, and the telomere length rapidly reduces over uh, cell divisions. 
About the same time or just before we identified this, there were two papers that came out that showed that a severe childhood form of uh, dyskeratosis congenita, which I won't even try to pronounce, that's um, mostly seen in Europeans, uh, was associated uh, with this Artel variant, again in a homozygous or compound heterozygous form. So uh, we've now gone on to uh, look at Artel variants uh, in, in a variety of families. We've identified more than 20 mutations. We've started to do structural modeling of this. Uh, and it's very clear that these uh, are probably the second most uh, common cause of familial IPF uh, that we know to date. Uh, and they uh, certainly uh, uh, seem to be um, uh, an important uh, phenotype that we're still trying to understand in terms of whether the patients uh, behave the same as, uh, as the other telomerase uh, variants. I just want to quickly mention this has now been validated by Christine Garcia's group who found this in some exome sequencing of her own families uh, and showed the same thing. Uh, so this is just a, a list of peripheral blood telomere links from our telomerase families. And you can see the different groups here. There are Artels in green, the, the Turks in blue. TR is the same as Turk, and, and we have a few mutations in DKC1. So uh, all of these people have short telomeres. And you can see that about half of the probands here that have telomere links below the 50th percentile uh, fall into one of these families. So we still have some uh, work to do to identify other genes, but we're getting there in this group. Unfortunately, for this group uh, that have normal telomere length, uh, we still don't understand the, the genes in many of these folks. So uh, uh, I just want to also mention that these are loss of function telomerase variants. These are T-circles in Artel variants, and you can see they're increased. And then when we immortalize lymphocytes from these patients, which should elongate uh, telomeres and culture them for several passages, telomere length increases and in controls and decreases in the artels, again, su supporting the idea that these are loss of function variants. Okay, so artel has been very interesting. We're making animal models now to try and understand this and, and have uh, several uh, ongoing studies to try and identify how this works and, and, and leads to disease uh, in the lungs. But we also have a lot of other families that we're interested in and trying to narrow down to single genes. So an example of uh, a new gene that we've identified is this one called CENPN, which is centromere protein N. And I just want to go through how we identify this as a candidate gene. So uh, in this family, the proband, when we looked at all variants by exome sequencing, had 24,000 variants that we could identify. And you can see that if we look at common variants that are shared by siblings, half-sibs, and half-sibs, we can reduce this total number of variants substantially because many of these aren't shared across different people. When we follow our algorithm down by looking at ones that are in the coding region that are heterozygous, we exclude redundant uh, genes. Uh, and we uh, look at ones that have adequate coverage in our sequencing algorithm, and then uh, uh, ones that meet our allele frequency cutoff for being rare variants, this person had 77, which is in the range, by the way, because if we sequence everyone in this room, probably you have in the range of 100 rare variants, which is quite interesting since presumably you don't have 100 different diseases. So uh, not, it's certainly not true that every... Um, potentially damaging variant causes uh, disease, and it's challenging to figure out which ones are the important ones for your disease that you care about. So in this uh, person, there were 77 of these. We were able to sequentially narrow this down to 36, 9, and 4 by going out to ones that were shared among these four folks. And then this uh, four we were stuck with. And so what we did is that we found other affecteds in this family, uh, a fifth and a sixth one. We screened for all four of those disease. And this gene, CENPN, is the only one that was shared among all six affecteds and was negative uh, in a married in control. So this is the CENPN family. I just want to point out, again, this is one of our larger families. Many of our families are smaller, and it's really difficult to identify genes in those families. But this one is powerful enough to let us. This is the mutation. 
And uh, centromere protein N is a very interesting protein that's involved in cell division as the chromosomes split apart during cell division. And so you might imagine that this is important broadly and not just in the lung. So we still don't know why this would have a lung-specific phenotype. This family is really uh, unusual in that they have a number of individuals as young as their 20s who develop disease, some going up to their 60s. Most of them have IPF, a number of them smoke. And uh, when we look at their scans, actually, there is a very interesting phenotype that I'm not sure shows up well, but they have lots of cystic chains, some of it's that's central. And this is seen in a subgroup of our families, but, um, but is common among these uh, folks. So this might be a slightly different phenotype. We just uh, don't uh, know that well yet. And we've identified now two more families, but, uh, but are still trying to accrue more. And this is the lung pathology over on the right that's similar to what we see from UIP. Uh, the first patient that we identified, actually, we got skin fibroblasts, and we looked at proliferation, and we looked at CENPN. Uh, in, in the nucleus, and we found that that was reduced. We made immortalized lymphocytes and showed that those cells had reduced proliferation. And then when we did uh, cell proliferation flow, what you can see here is that in the mutant uh, cells, many of them are in the sub-G1, which means that they're out of the cell cycle. So I think uh, we have evidence that this uh, change uh, in this uh, gene affects um, cell proliferation. And so now we're working to understand how this uh, causes uh, changes in the lung and leads to fibrosis. So just to summarize our exome sequencing data, this clearly is a powerful methodology that uh, gives us the opportunity to identify new uh, disease-associated genes. Um, it appears that there are going to be multiple genes, and so we're going to have to go and look at function for a variety of these. Uh, heterozygous loss of function of our child seems to be a mutation that causes IPF in at least 5% of our families. And then there are going to be rare genes like CENPN uh, that uh, contribute to uh, disease. Some of them may have unique phenotypes like this. And so we're hoping to continue to identify uh, FIP genes that will help us with the with determining critical pathways because once we get there, we think that we can start to put things in, a, in bins a little bit easier and uh, maybe make the discovery a little bit faster. Okay, so in the last few minutes, I want to talk to you about our natural history study. We call this the early IPF study because when you find a disease in a 65-year-old person, you don't know how long that uh, disease has been going on. And when we think about interventions, it's pretty clear that uh, the lung is already very scarred by the time people develop symptoms. So if we could identify patients earlier, then it might help us to understand what are the primary events that cause disease and maybe will set us up to do some early treatment studies. So that's why we did this. And what we started to do back in 2009, although it took a couple years for us to really get going with this, is that we started screening asymptomatic first-degree relatives of uh, people who had uh, uh, familial uh, interstitial pneumonia. We took people aged 40 to 70. They filled out extensive questionnaires. We got high-resolution CT scans and blood draws on all of them. We've now collected almost 250 of these. We did bronchoscopies on the first 100. We followed them with yearly questionnaires. Uh, we are starting to get people in for repeat screening at five years, and we're trying to prioritize these people for genetic testing as well as a longitudinal follow-up so we can determine the connection between genetic risk, who develops disease, and how that might be different in different families. So far, the demographics are that the median age of enrollment is about 51. So again, this is more than a decade before we would expect them to have symptoms. 27% are smokers, which is uh, about the um, percentage uh, in the South. Uh, and 65% of these are females. So, as I said before, about 60% of IPF are, uh, are, and familial IPF are males, but uh, females are the ones who sign up for studies. <laughs> so um, when we've looked at these, uh, of our scans, 24% of them have abnormal CT scans. We reported the first few of these last year uh, in the Blue Journal. And you can see these are subtle changes. This may not even show up very well here. They're subpleural and they're, right they're in the right spot to be early lesions of IPF. And mostly they're intralobular septal thickening. So we don't see a lot of honeycombing. 
we don't see a lot of the end stage manifestations. But uh, this is what we guess might uh, be something that progresses. And then when we looked at correlations between things that we measure and abnormal CT scans, uh, not too surprisingly, if you're older or if you smoke, uh, then you're more likely to have an abnormal scan. But interestingly, the telomeres show up. So this telomere uh, changes early. In fact, these are not the telomeres in the peripheral blood. These are ones that we measured in the lung tissue. And that actually might be our best predictor of whether someone is going to develop disease. So these telomeres are short. In fact, uh, everybody who develops symptomatic disease has short telomeres in their uh, alveolar epithelium, but uh, these people had it early on. Also, these markers, MMP7 and uh, SPD, which have been associated with uh, symptomatic IPF, actually were increased in our at-risk people who had abnormal scans. So uh, just to summarize this, about a quarter of our asymptomatic at-risk subjects have abnormal CTs. I didn't show you, but the histopathology doesn't correlate very well with this, which is a really uh, interesting finding that we don't understand well. Uh, many of our subjects have short telomeres to, to begin with, both in their peripheral blood and in their lungs. Uh, and they have abnormal uh, plasma biomarkers already, giving us the hope that over time we can identify people who are going to go uh, to have progressive uh, disease. So asymptomatic uh, individuals have derangements in multiple pathways at least a decade before typical onset of disease, and we're hoping that by continuing to follow this cohort that we can develop risk stratification uh, information, predictive modeling, and me mechanistic insights that we hope will lead to new uh, early treatment. And so I'll just leave you with our current recommendations for genetic testing. People ask me this all the time. So this is an evolving uh, algorithm, but this is what I currently recommend. So if you have a patient who gets diagnosed with an idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, uh, then uh, you should ask whether there's a family history. If the answer is yes, then uh, I would recommend that you look for disease before age 18. So uh, in our experience, if someone in the family as a teenager develops symptomatic disease, then the likelihood of a surfactant mutation is relatively high, and we suggest genetic testing for surfactant mutations and then offering genetic testing to the extended family. In most families, and the vast majority of our families, there's no uh, affected uh, under the age of 18. And so if the answer is no to either of these questions, either family, no family history or uh, no one that has early disease, then uh, it makes sense to ask them about markers of a telomere syndrome. And so that could be cryptogenic cirrhosis, so people who have cirrhosis but no history of alcohol uh, abuse, uh, aplastic anemia, premature graying, or characteristics that we see uh, that associate with, uh, with telomere syndrome. If, so if you don't have that, then currently uh, I wouldn't recommend any genetic testing. If you do have any of these changes, either in you or your family, then uh, it probably makes sense to screen by peripheral blood telomere link testing. This can be done by flow cytometry. It's available commercially, only costs about $200, $250, cheaper than pulmonary function tests, uh, and uh, probably has some pr prognostic uh, value outside of the genetics piece. And so if that's greater than 10%, then right now no genetic testing probably uh, is warranted. If, it's short, if the telomeres are short, then uh, we would recommend testing for uh, telomerase uh, variants. And then if we detect the mutation, then offer the screening to the extended family. So uh, this really is a work in progress, but it's an outline that, um, that, that you can think about if you see people who have this disease, and certainly if they have a family history. Uh, also, uh, we are uh, continuing to accrue patients all the time and would be delighted for any referrals, either in at-risk family members or, um, or people who uh, are in families with disease because we would like to enroll them in our genetic studies. Currently, we have more than 1,200 families that we follow along with the people in Colorado. And so uh, obviously this is a huge amount of work done by a lot of people who aren't me, so I just want to list a, a, a long list of people who have contributed to this work. This is my lab, and I want to say thank you to the NIH for ongoing support. I appreciate your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. Rich.
really very interesting to talk about becomes clear is the telomere abnormalities, for example, would be every cell in the body. Is there a reason why the lung might be particularly susceptible to that particular problem? Yeah, that's a good question that I don't have a definitive answer, but I'll tell you how I've come to think about that. So uh, telomere length is related both to cell turnover and to telomerase activity. So uh, in general, uh, um, tissues where there's a lot of turnover, like the bone marrow or the crypts in the GI tract, have a lot of telomerase activity even into adulthood. And so if you had a mutation that caused some reduction there, you still might not reach a critically low telomerase to cell division ratio. In the lung, it's interesting because there's telomerase activity during development, but in the adult, uh, type 2 cells have almost no telomerase activity, and it's very hard to induce it. So I think it's a susceptible region because the level of injury repair that probably causes fibrosis isn't something that we're adapted to. And I think that the requirement for proliferation outstrips the ability of the telomerase to elongate the telomeres, and so you get progressive telomere shortening. So I think you can have other manifestations, of course, like cryptogenic cirrhosis. And so it probably depends on where your injury is. So the injury probably isn't along with IPF and the liver or the bone marrow with other causes. But it also probably has to do with this ratio of how quickly your cells are turning over versus how much telomerase you can express. Yes. Dan. I have two questions. In the surfactant mutants, um, they look like it, the protein accumulates in the lysosome. And the question I have is whether hydroxychloroquine, which alters protein handling in the lysosome, would be potentially therapeutic. My second question is about the RTL and the um, CEN. Both of those are potential targets for autoantibodies in scleroderma. Yep. And um, that is an association with pulmonary fibrosis and right. prevention. So I'm wondering whether you've been uh, looking at that. Yeah, so those are really two very good uh, points. Uh, so the first one uh, is that um, in our mice, uh, the mutant protein seems to go through this thing called ERAD, which is a degradation uh, pathway that doesn't get to the lysosomes. In the humans, it looks like there might be lysosomes. In fact, uh, some pediatricians have treated the kids with surfactant mutations uh, with chloroquine, and then it's anecdotal, and it's not clear that it makes a gigantic difference. But, but it is an interesting suggestion that, that's worth looking at. Uh, the second one is uh, that I've, we've certainly thought about the same things. This might be a good connection between collagen vascular disease-related ILD, but this is new and we haven't looked at that at all. Dave? Thanks for a very interesting talk. Um, in, in one of your last slides that showed um, family penetrance, let's say, it, it was, and it went by pretty quickly, but on the left side of the slide, there was a family where I think four out of four children were affected. And you had said it, it was probably autosomal dominant, but variable penetrance. The other side of the slide, I think something like two or three out of eight children in another one of the family. Is, do you think there's any utility to looking at those two subpopulations with the family to see if they inherited the same gene, but there's something different on both branches of the family that help determine the variable penetrance. Yeah, so uh, another really good uh, observation, and I think you're right on target. So I won't show that family, but we have a number of families that look like this. And, and uh, in a number of those, particularly in the Artel families, uh, which are, we have some large ones there, uh, all those affected share the, um, the, the heterozygous rare variant but we don't know anything about modifiers. And it does appear that there are clusters with high penetrance and clusters that have lower penetrance. So you could suggest maybe that there are modifier genes uh, involved, although it's also possible that there are different environmental exposures. And we, that's the problem with this disease. We, we just don't know that. But I think as we gather more information, more families, and really get a better idea of what the penetrance is, we can do a more scientific job in trying to think about what the other factors are. We don't know what the penetrance is, by the way. I, I, my guess, 
based on looking at a lot of these pedigrees, is that it's about 50%. Uh, but some families seem to be completely penetrant. So, so that's, um, I say that though with the caveat that in a disease that you don't get until you're 65, unaffecteds are almost meaningless because, I mean, maybe you're going to get it when you're 82 and you don't have it when you're 81. So there's probably an age above which if you don't have symptoms, you're likely not to get them, but we haven't defined that very well. And so making those penetrance arguments when we don't, when we can't classify the unaffecteds is very difficult. Yeah. William. Trying to weave together the comment about almost all groups being Caucasian, the age of 65, and telomere life. So there's three. I, there's, so how do those comment, how do those things weave together? Is there an ethnic variation in telomere length? Do, do our telomeres get shorter as we get older? For example, would the medical students have longer telomeres than the professors in the audience? And uh, how did the end, um, or is it possible that uh, it's the disease that's actually driving, driving the shortening of the telomeres. Yeah. So, so, um, so the good news for the medical students is that they do have longer telomeres. So enjoy it while you can. Um, so the telomere length is a genetically determined factor. Uh, there have been some really nice studies. There's an elegant study several years ago that identified 11 genes that appear to have a role in, in telomere length at adulthood. There are a variety of diseases that reduce telomere length. In fact, lots of things that cause chronic inflammation reduce telomere length. Smoking itself reduces telomere length in the peripheral blood. And so uh, there are a variety of things that affect that. I don't know, to, to really go to the next level to try and answer your question, we don't know whether peripheral blood telomere length tells us anything about a particular organ or not. We've done this in some of our uh, at-risk people, and, and there's almost no correlation between peripheral blood telomere length and the telomere length in the lung in these at-risk people. So you can have normal telomere length in the peripheral blood, and it can be very short in the lung. Now, we don't usually see the other way around. So probably means that if you have short peripheral blood telomeres, that you have some risk because you have a global telomere shortening. But you can also get there with normal telomeres and the lungs can be particular, the ones in the type 2 cells in the lung. So I think there's no clear ethnic relationship between telomere length uh, that, that I know of. Um, but I think, um, I think in the, uh, the, the relatively fewer African-American sporadics that we've looked at, that, looked at, some of those people have short telomeres. So, so I, it's not that they have a completely different syndrome, but it is interesting that we just don't have that as a familial form. And we've been, everywhere I go, I ask people, if you have African-American families that have this disease, please send them to us, because I think that's something that we really need to understand is, you know, if there are a few families out there, do they have the same characteristics as, as our Caucasian ancestry folks? Is that true also for Asians? Um, un unclear. Uh, so we don't have many Asian families. There are a few uh, in Asia that have been reported that are familial. Um, I I'm not sure what their disease course is. The Hispanics in our group, that we follow seem to be pretty much the same as the Caucasians, as best we can tell, although they're minor subgroups. 96% of our families are Caucasian. So everything else is uh, just a few uh, here and there. So that must mean, by the way, that there's some ancestor effect uh, that probably uh, we've actually linked through David Swartz's studies probably to England as the originator that, you know, when, when you do mitochondrial markers and you look at ancestry, that's probably where this uh, disease started, if you will. Um, if there's no other questions, actually, can I ask one quick one? A lot of these studies that you show and many people show um, frequently compare IPF lung in any number of different with any number of different phenotypes, including you know, endoplasmic reticulum stress and that sort of thing. And the control is a normal lung. What's the right control? Because there are a lot of diseases where normal lung repair occurs and it doesn't progress. And I mean, I think a great example would be rheumatoid lung, where certain types of rheumatoid lung 
are post-inflammatory fibrosis, and the fibrosis stops, heals, and it's normal wound healing versus the abnormal wound healing you see in the other type. And how much of what you're looking at can you attribute to the biology of normal wound healing versus the abnormalities associated with abnormal wound healing? Yeah, so, so very fair point. Uh, I would answer that, I guess, in, in two ways. Um, first, I would say that um, we haven't looked at other injury repair diseases exactly, although in COPD, for instance, we don't see this. So that may not be the right disease. Uh, but I think most of these things are important for normal wound healing. This is normal wound healing gone bad. And so it's probably degree and duration as opposed to yes and no. One thing that gets to that, you know, people hate this bleomycin model that people use for, for mice, but it's a great injury repair model. And we do not see much ER stress in that model. I mean, it's very minor. Uh, and so you need something else on top of that to cause ER stress. So I, I don't think that this, at least this profound, prolonged ER stress that we see uh, is related uh, to, to exactly to normal wound healing. That seems to be aberrant wound healing. And maybe it's not aberrant wound healing, but it's an underlying substrate that's abnormal that, that sets you up to respond in a different way would be my way of looking at that. If there's no other questions, anybody wants to come down and ask questions afterwards? Thank you, uh, Tim. Excellent talk. Thanks. Absolutely.